I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello and a happy Randy New Year to you. Our guest this week is so good, we'll do it again next episode. That's right, a double feature of the award-winning sportscaster, Randy Rosenblum. Per usual, we encourage you to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen and remind you that we also are on YouTube as a video podcast. I first met Randy about 15 years ago when he called Play by Play and I was the analyst for a Time Warner Cable presentation of the AAU Beach Volleyball National Championship Games from Hermosa Beach, California. I had heard of Randy before, given he called a ton of high school and college games in different sports in the Southern California area. But my curiosity about Randy stemmed from his last name, Rosenblum. I knew of a former boxer and television personality from way back that had a nightclub in Los Angeles called Slapsy Maxis. It had been featured in the 2013 movie Gangster Squad. It turned out that Slapsy Maxi Rosenblum was Randy's uncle. I was intrigued, especially given that my uncle was the famed boxing ring announcer Jimmy Lennon Sr. What many of today's sports fans do not necessarily know is that boxing was wildly popular in the United States for decades, second only to baseball for a long stretch of time spanning from the 1920s through the 1950s. The dramatic setting of a ring and a boxer's singular pursuit make it a perfect metaphor for movies. My Uncle Jim, a World Boxing Hall of Fame inductee, announced from the 1930s through the 1980s. He worked for many years at the Grand Olympic Auditorium in downtown LA, where he also announced wrestling matches. Uncle Jim took full advantage of being near Hollywood, and he appeared as a ring announcer in countless TV shows and movies. Among his many TV roles was a classic one on the CBS television series, The Munsters. A Golden Globe and Emmy Award nominated show that produced 70 episodes between 1964 and 1966 and has aired forever since in reruns. The Munsters was about the life of a family of benign monsters, including the enigmatic Al Lewis's grandpa, who was a Dracula-like bat, former Hollywood film star Yvonne DiCarlo as the vampire wife of Herman Munster, who was a Frankenstein type. How a husband and wife who were a Frankenstein and a vampire hooked up to produce a son that was a half-vampire, half-werewolf? That was never explained. Anyhow, Herman Munster was played by the Harvard-educated Fred Gwynn, who had a distinguished career as an artist as well as a character actor. His acting work spanned from the iconic 1954 Best Picture on the Waterfront, which starred Marlon Brando as an ex-fighter doing the dirty work for an organized crime boss on the New Jersey docks, to his acclaimed role nearly 40 years later as Judge Chamberlain Holler alongside Joe Pesci in the movie My Cousin Vinny, which incidentally was his final role. In The Monsters, the juxtaposition of monsters that were nice and were trying to assimilate into society was spot on for the times and hilarious. In episode eight of season one, Jimmy Lennon Sr. announced as Herman Munster wrestled in Herman the Great. It's worth a look on YouTube. Jimmy Lennon also appeared in movies from the 1940s through the 1980s, including Rocky III, the one with Mr. T and Hulk Hogan, and who can forget the smash hit Eye of the Tiger from Survivor. 
Uncle Jim also appeared in what might be the greatest sports movie of all time, Raging Bull, starring Robert De Niro. Since his death in 1992, his son, Jimmy Lennon Jr., has carried on the tradition. In fact, Jimmy Jr. was in the ring the night of Buster Douglas's huge upset of Mike Tyson in Tokyo. He was also the ring announcer for the Tyson fight in Las Vegas on the night Death Row Records recording artist Tupac Shakur was shot and killed. Keep an eye out for Jimmy Jr. coming to the 7428 studio for an upcoming episode of Sports Stories. But I, per usual, digress. Maxie Rosenblum was born in 1907, back when Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was our nation's 26th president. Maxie came up as a fighter in the late 1920s, won the world lightweight title in 1932, and held on to the belt until 1934. He had an open glove style of boxing, which is how he picked up the moniker of Slapsy Maxie back when sports writers gave you cool nicknames. He would score a lot of points with the Slapsy technique, and he was a specially crafty defensive fighter as well. He did, however, take thousands of shots to the head. I mean, the man fought 299 times in 16 years. That's about 19 times a year, which is outrageous for a fighter. The multiple hits to the head deteriorated his motor functions, leaving him what people would call punch drunk. Slapsy Maxi Rosenblum took his catchy name, charming personality, and fame from boxing and became what you would call a personality. He acted on radio, television, and in films from the mid-1930s until the late 1960s. In addition to a multitude of film and TV appearances, you can catch Slapsy on a rerun episode of The Munsters, Season 1, Episode 11, The Midnight Ride of Herman Munster. Fred Gwynn, your noble efforts as Herman Munster shall not be forgotten. Maxie Rosenblum opened his popular Slapsy Maxie's nightclub in San Francisco in the early 1940s. Eventually moved it to Los Angeles, ending up on Beverly Boulevard in the Fairfax District of Los Angeles. Today, the Beverly Cinema has taken its place. It was one of those places you see in an L.A. film noir movie where gangsters like Mickey Cohen would mix with Hollywood stars. Well, that was in fact the clientele of Slapsy Maxis, where Mickey Cohen had his own table and plenty of TV and film stars came and went. Stars like Marilyn Monroe, Humphrey Bogart, and even Fred Gwynn. Max Everett Rosenblum died in 1976 and was buried in North Hollywood. A bigger-than-life character was 68 years old. My guest today, Randy Rosenblum, is the last living relative of Maxie, and he has co-written a screenplay of his uncle's life, Punchdrug, the Maxie Rosenblum story. But Randy is so much more than a screenplay writer. The man should be punch drunk himself, having broadcast thousands of sporting events over his career. Randy, however, is anything but. He's a consummate professional, always on his game. He is called, as you will hear from my interview with him, a wide range of sports in everything from the Olympics to college to high school and more. He's a member of multiple Hall of Fames, a winner of too many awards to account for, and he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Well, now that I've dropped Maxie Rosenblum, Jimmy Lennon Sr., the Grand Olympic Auditorium, Al Lewis, Yvonne DiCarlo, Herman Munster, Fred Gwynn, Marlon Brando, Joe Pesci, Rocky, Mr. T, Hulk Hogan, Survivor, Robert De Niro, Buster Douglas, Iron Mike Tyson, Tupac, The Rough Rider, Slapsy Maxie's Nightclub, The Beverly Cinema, Mickey Cohen, Marilyn Monroe, Humphrey Bogart, and Jimmy Lennon Jr. Ding, ding. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Sports Story 7428 studio in Westchester, California, the award-winning sportscaster, Randy Rosenblum. Welcome, buddy. 
Good to be here. Good to be with Denny Lennon. Very good. How'd you do on your shot? I missed, but the rebound went in. I shot from farther <laughs> out and got the rebound and scored. Well, you know, you'll join a, uh, a long list of esteemed guests that have missed their shot outside. I see, but I don't know if it's really a miss because I got the rebound and I put it back up. So it, I got the it, points and I got a rebound. When you got the rebound and you're on the left side, right? did you use the left hand? Yes, I'm no, ambidextrous. Then, it's, then, it, then, it's, then it's legit. Yeah, I'm ambidextrous exactly and I can what, shoot with either hand. That's exactly what Coach Wooden would expect out of you. Right, think. Well, the coach <laughs> taught me well. <laughs> hey, Dad, I can't, I, you know, I'm looking forward to talking about that. So, Randy, when did, I, I was going over and I was trying to think when we, you and I met. Um, and I kind of forget if it was when you first was do one of the AAU beach volleyball games or perhaps when I was thrown into, um, you know, like a Time Warner game or something like that. I believe it's at AAU. Yeah, I, think I think that's so. when we started doing some matches. Then after we had some success as broadcasters on the AAU circuit, uh, I believe then uh, Time Warner realized that the Randy Rosenblum-Denny Lennon combo tandem would work. Did we? Um, do you? Re- I, I don't know if you remember. Those were uh, fun days doing those uh, games at the beach at Hermosa. But we would um, we would fly the cables from a, right. from across the hotel over over the uh, the streetlights, yeah. and then down under the sand. <laughs> and that didn't go so well with the fire department eventually. No, it didn't. But <laughs> but the shot itself was really good. It was really good. And from a perspective of broadcast television or cable television at the time. That was the most important thing. It the was. program looked good. What I enjoyed about the AAU match is you're seeing the future. You know, whenever Absolutely. you do youth sports in general, but especially those AAU beach volleyball matches, terrific players, just the beginning of their careers. A lot of them have gone on to bigger and better things, but it was terrific to watch them in their beginning stages. And some of which, I mean, you could see uh, have you know called some Olympic games. You could see that that was the pipeline. Right, that they would come up through there. Yeah, and we'll see more over the years. We'll it's, see more. It's, it's going to continue. So um, let's let's go back a little bit. Where'd you, where'd you grow up? North Hollywood, California, exactly where I am now. I uh, am in the same home I grew up in. Oh, wow. Uh, my parents moved there when I was two and a half. Okay. Uh, I'm a little older than that now. Unfortunately, the parents have passed away. I've uh, changed the house up a little bit, put some dollars into it. But uh, I'm thrilled uh, to be back uh, where I started. I did move away for... A time I went and uh, moved to Canada on a broadcast okay. project for a while, and then I was in Vegas doing UNLV sports and mm-hmm. working at a couple different stations there. So I, I, but when my mom got sick near the end, I came back home, and I, when she went, uh, you know, that was it. I just stayed in the house after she passed away. Sure. What did, what what did your um? Tell me a little about your parents. Like, what did they do? My mom was a stay-at-home mom, okay. and I was not an easy kid. Was, uh, I would difficult. imagine. No, I was uh, rambunctious. Verbose. Yes. Um, <laughs> actually shy as a child, believe it or not. Uh, five pounds, 13 ounces. Okay. And uh, I took that small size, and I was very shy, but I came out of it, obviously, after a period of time. My dad worked at a clothing store. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, lingerie. Which one? Uh, Lucy Ann, lingerie in Where? Beverly Hills. Beverly, Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills for like 20 years. He was the brother of Slapsy Maxie Rosenblum, and I know we're going to get into that. He Absolutely. was the youngest brother. So, yeah, my dad was a very quiet, shy gentleman. Seriously, had a great personality once you would open him up. But it was my mom. She, she was, was the one who was outspoken and was, uh, <laughs> I think I take after her a little bit. <laughs> you have uh, brothers and sisters? No, nope, I'm the only child. In fact, I'm the last Rosenblum. Oh, okay. Uh, that's it. When it uh, finally ends for me, hopefully in about 40 or 50 years, 
Um, oh man, uh, that'll be the end of the Rosenblum line. Well, we'll line. put this down for all posterity's sake. Absolutely, this will be this will be good. Um, so you brought it up, Slapsy Maxie. Um, that's one of uh, when when I first met you and I heard the last name of Rosenblum because you know my uncle Jimmy Lennon, sure. the boxing announcer, and I was always drawn to boxing and enjoyed going to the Olympic Auditorium and stuff. So I kind of would work my way backwards, study some history, and so I recognized that name. And he was. Not only a boxer, he went beyond that, but tell me a little bit about Slapsy Maxie. Well, he did fight at the Olympic. Yeah. Uh, he, he fought everywhere, Madison Square Garden. Uh, Slapsy Maxie Rosenblum is not a household name now, but when I was young, he was famous. Yeah. Um, he, he was the uh, light heavyweight champion of the world from 1929 to 1934. Okay. Uh, he fought more rounds as a champion than Joe Lewis boxed in his entire career. Is that? Wow. He was a... Uh, crazy individual he got into boxing because he really wanted to be a comedian okay he wanted the notoriety and uh, it just so happened he was a troubled youngster and he got into a lot of fights and he got into boxing and he was good at it he was a tremendous defensive fighter considered by many as one of the great defensive boxers of all time no power but he had as many or more professional fights than anyone in the history of the industry. And that's something. Some of the numbers you don't really know because different books have different numbers for different mm-hmm. fighters. But if you calculate the amateur fights to go along with the professional fights, he had close to 400 fights. That's a lot of So when he went into broadcast after that, he did radio and TV. He was a movie star. He had his own nightclub. He has all these different things. Yes, he did have a radio show. He did go into broadcast. But he Mm -hmm. slurred his words a lot. And he would say to people, I had 400 fights. What's your excuse? (laughs) So he was a very interesting character, lovable guy, clean cut, didn't drink, didn't smoke. Was he out this way? Uh, He moved out here to uh, enhance his future movie career he was a new yorker he, so he, that's where he won his light heavyweight title yeah he was a York, champion at he the was, garden yeah he was friendly with uh with uh, a lot of different people including franklin roosevelt uh they had numerous meetings on the train when he so, was the president and they so, would talk boxing because roosevelt what was train is how's he getting on the train with the president how does this well because that's where they would meet okay so <laughs> Roosevelt was on a boxing commission when he was young, and Maxie was oh, a champion from New York, and oh, they were pretty yeah. good friends. So this would have been, okay. Maxie was champ again in 29 to 34. Sure. And again, I don't know the exact wow, times and dates, but, yeah, he was tight with a lot of people. Uh, the interesting thing is, you know, he, he would know Al Capone and do business with Al Capone, and then one night later in the week he might do business with the President of the United States. It was that kind of life. He had different stages of his life. That are just off the charts. And he, and he dated just about every lady in Hollywood. I mean, for a 20 to 30 year period, nobody had a better life, in my opinion, than Slapsy Maxie Rosewood. Now, the negative. Those 400 fights caught those, up. They to, added up, right? And even though he was a great fighter, you take punches, like Muhammad Ali. Sure. And as he got older, he did not age well. And he didn't live very long. Yeah, he, he only died in his late sixties. Six years, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. So, you, so he died what in like seventy six. Correct. So you knew him as a youngster very well. I did the eulogy at his funeral. Oh wow. Um, we were tight. I was like uh, his kid because okay. he didn't have any kids. He would. He was living in Hollywood at the time, and he mm. would come to my house, literally the house I'm in now. Uh, two times a week, okay. at least once, but sometimes two times a week nice. for dinner. My mom would make him dinner, and we would sit around and talk. I heard some story about he enraged Hitler at some point. 
He enraged Hitler because he beat Hitler's fighter. Oh, uh, oh they, they fought. Okay. And he beat a designated great fighter in New York. Max Baer? No, it wasn't Max Baer. It was, um, I'll think of the Max name. Max Baer was a heavyweight, right? Uh, it was Adolf Hauser. Yeah, there's, okay. there's the name. It was Adolf Hauser. And uh, it was an interesting fight. Max, he controlled the fight, dominated the fight. And Hitler was not very pleased with it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we all know what happened with Hitler. But that was uh, that, that was a point that Hitler really got irked by when my uncle beat his designated fighter. Adolf and he had uh, the, fa- the Slapsy Maxis. Was that like on Beverly or on Wilshire or something? It was on Wilshire. Yeah. Um, and he had three clubs, actually. It was Now, after he got out of boxing, he went into movies. He did close to 70 movies. He started with, you know, Jimmy Cagney, Humphrey Bogart. I, I can go on and on. Wow. Um, he was tight with Lucille Ball. I mean, he was connected to everyone. But then he went into his, his nightclub, Slapsy Maxis, and, and the one locally did well, but he had one in Miami, and I think there's the tie to Al Capone there. Okay. I believe that. I don't know that for certainty. I wasn't back there. What a fascinating story. And then he had one in San Francisco as well. So this, you have this fascinating story. And you, you have you, you've written a screenplay. Correct. Uh, is it a, is it a documentary or is it a screenplay? No, it's a screenplay, and we've been uh, talking to a number of different outlets. One in particular now has it there. We still haven't had the movement I would like, but it's possible, and we're taking the necessary steps trying to get it made. You know, I, I, I say this to people: the good news is nobody knows who he is, and mm-hmm. the bad news is nobody. nobody knows who he is. When that story breaks and they see this movie and see his life, they're going to be blown away. Like, how do we not know about this guy? Yeah, which is great. I love those gems. Yeah, it'll be a wonderful story. Let's hope it gets made. I always have said to people, and not because I was involved in it, I think it's good enough to win an Academy Award. I don't know if it'll ever be made. That's the biggest question. (laughs) You grew up uh, North Hollywood. North Hollywood. How'd you get involved in sports? Well, I think my uncle had a lot to do with it because yeah. I looked up to him, and I also looked up to Sandy Colfax growing up. Okay. And, again, I'll give my parents some kudos here. Uh, let's take you back to 1965. I was going to uh, junior high school or close to it, seventh grade, right around there. And it was the seventh game of the World Series with the Minnesota Twins. Yeah. And at that time, the game was played during the day. Sir. It was on network TV, Vin Scully and Ray Scott. Two of my favorite broadcasters of all time were doing the game. Ray Scott was the Twins announcer, and Vinny, obviously, the Dodgers announcer. And I asked my parents, I, I, it was in the middle of the week, I said, I want to stay home and watch it. It means a lot to me. And they allowed me to do that. I wasn't sick. I, you know, there's nothing great. wrong with me. Yeah. But they realized that that meant a lot to me. And to this day, I think that's what triggered most of it. I, I feel the same way. I have a similar story with uh, UCLA basketball. It was staying up late Thursday nights. Right. Because they would sure. do them Thursday and Saturdays. And my parents saw how much that meant to me. Right. And so staying up late Thursday nights to watch UCLA basketball was everything. And, and I would get up, fired up, ready to talk about it on Friday with anybody that listened. listen. Yeah, but this is really different in that they said, Randy, don't go to school. That's beautiful. Stay home. And I did. And then Colfax goes the distance, gets – a great defensive play at third base. Uh, you still but, a, you still a Dodger fan? Yeah, I, I, I try not to be a fan because yeah, I, I don't look at myself as a fan. I don't like that because I think it takes away from my broadcasting. Mm. Uh, I, I know uh, over the years I've broadcast for so many different schools like UNLV, UCLA, BYU. Fresno State for so many years with the Bulldogs. Now I do some stuff with Cal Lutheran. And I can go on and on. And I always tried to pull away. I never tried to get close to the athletes. I can give you an interesting story. 
quickly. Sure. Because I know you know, time is always of the essence. <laughs> I'm doing uh, Fresno State at Northern Illinois football. Jim Sweeney takes a tremendous team early in the year, undefeated, to DeKalb, Illinois. They're ranked 24th in the country, unbeaten. They go in there, and one of the administrators, who was an SID at the time, later becomes athletic director. He actually went from sports information director to Mm -hmm. AD in in later years. Sky Johnson pulls me aside. He goes, Randy, we really like the way you broadcast. You do a great job. I go, thank you. But here's what we want to see. We want you to be more partial toward the Bulldogs. And, again, that's tough for me knowing who I am because I like to cut it right down the middle. And, again, you're going to know more about the home team because you're with them all the time. No doubt. Well, the Bulldogs come out and score first. Northern Illinois proceeds to score the next 35 points, and it's 35-7 midway second (laughs) quarter. We go to a commercial break. Scott's actually doing stats for me. And I turn to Scott and I go, Scott, you got any ideas about me homering it up for the Bulldogs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, that was always, you could tell that, but Vince Gully is, is, you know, just iconic. And um, you knew he was a Dodger sure. through and through, but he called that game as best he could down the middle, but you felt his sense of being a longtime Dodger guy. And I always preferred it that way myself. Like you mentioned, like I'd rather that game come to me straight, and I'll interpret, you know, the homerism. I don't know where the skewed broadcasting really came from. Right. You're speaking to certain fans, and they're called fans because it's for fanatical. But I think the general public would rather see it down the middle. Yes, there is a body. There's an individual there's a number. Home, there's a home field. The, or court advantage yeah, that, you that can they're going to love you rooting for that team. But I think the masses in general want it down the middle. That's just the way I believe. You um, so that's 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 junior high. So you're it's like now. What's the first team do you remember playing on? Like an after school team or something like that. What what, what was your junior high? Uh, Walter Reed, nice in, uh, Walter in the Reed. San Fernando Valley. Still, do you there. remember playing on a team there? Or was I that... remember hitting a home run in a All Star softball game against uh, the faculty. Nice. I struck out the first time. Bradford May, who now is my director for the <laughs> okay. Slapsy Project and a very famous director doing a lot of Hallmark movies and a lot of other stuff. Bradford's a great guy. He was managing my uh, junior uh, high it. school team. I strike out, and he comes up to me. and He goes, Randy, I may have to pull you if you hit like that again. Next time I come up, I hit it into the street, yeah. hit a home run, and I was the hero for a minute. Isn't that fun? How you remember these yeah, things? Yeah, that'll never forget. That's a childhood memory. Were there other adults that uh, took an interest in, in you towards athletics and kind of moved you in the right direction? Well, another interesting thing about in junior high it happened as well is I flunked my shot put test during the regular year. Shot put test? Shot put. We had a test on how far you could throw the shot That's put. so specific. Is that yes. the only thing? You took like a, a math I, test. I don't remember. Like, okay, I'm sure we had. I, I, well, test. those I failed for sure. <laughs> but, there, but we took a shot put test, and I flunked. So I'm, I'm sitting. <laughs> wait, wait, they're making. Who are they making do a shot put? The coach. He yeah, had everybody. A, he, everybody has to. I got an F. About, they didn't worry about your rotator cuff. No, did they? I was okay. I was bad. Was like so now I go game. to the track meet. Once a year they have a track meet. <laughs> okay. And in the bigger division, which I think was the C's at that time. Yeah. yeah. They didn't have enough guys. And the coach turns to me and goes, Randy, get in there. Get your clothes. Get in there. Get your gym stuff on. I go, Coach, I flunked the test. He goes, I don't care. I need a big guy. Get in there. I go out. First put, I take the lead. The second one, he says, 
throw it out of the ring. I set a record which lasted eight years. Come on now. No, true story. Wow. Went on, didn't break. I broke the eighth grade record. That was in seventh grade. Broke the eighth grade record, missed by a few inches in ninth grade, and was an all-league shot putter in high school. Who was that coach? Mr. Walters. Ken Walters. Ken Walters. I love it. I like like those names for the past because I like to think, too, because I coached in – you know, elementary school for so long. Right. You know. And, and they and have so influence on you. know what it's like to get yeah. a, a young athlete started. And there's just that moment where it clicks. And but it's so odd and it was so arbitrary. <laughs> Rosenblum, get in there. Coach, I flunked. Why do you want me out there? But I, I reacted to it and, man, did I I was a strong cat. Here's another thing. When I was in high school, I never worked out. I played football and I threw the shot put. I was the strongest kid in the school. In, in in high school or, or high school in high school North this, Hollywood. This is North Hollywood North Hollywood you know you, you know me Jenny I leap around were you the Huskies I was a Husky yeah yeah I was right. the Husky but did I was you, big did you, did you shop in the Husky boy section yeah I was yeah. I had to with my size <laughs> but I went into the weight room on the machine easily would bench three hundred I never worked out easily bench three hundred on the machine with my left arm and I shot put it with the left I'm ambidextrous okay I write with the right. I could bench 200-plus with one arm. I would never work out. I would do it a few times, put it down, and walk right out. Hmm. But I never worked out. I was strong, but I didn't know how to play football. I was a horrible football player. Football and track, those were your two sports? Yes. Tried basketball, but after what you witnessed with me coming in here, you <laughs> I could I like see that why. you clean it up with the left hand. Yeah. Well, I, I made a hook. I made a left-handed hook when it was, again, against the – at Walter Reed, I told you the softball game, I hit the homer. Sure. Well, we also played the faculty in basketball, and I, for whatever reason, I got. They came out and greeted me as I came across half court, and I must have been thirty-five feet away, and I got stuck near the corner of the court, and I threw up a left-handed hook, and the darn thing banked <laughs> in. But I was not a very good basketball. And uh, I was athletic director at a Catholic school, eighth grade level and under, and we would do a, a game versus the faculty. And then this one year, this this new teacher came in, and she was a nun. But she happened to be a black belt in karate and wow. very athletic. And when she started injuring all my players, I had to cancel that series, Randy. <laughs> I had to, I had to cancel that series. good call. Sister Martha. Um, so which, was it at um, North Hollywood that you get involved in broadcasting or at least started to call some games or do any kind of PA announcing? None of that. I of did that. go up into the rafters at some basketball games. I would know our players and make up names for the other team. You know, okay. Today, everybody knows everybody. But back when I was in high school, you didn't know who the opponent was sure. in terms of their names. And I did do some basketball play-by-play in the stands, but really yes. never thought about it I, until yeah. I was flunking out at Valley College. Now, did you did were you, did you also, like, turn down the television and call those games and, and things like that? I remember Not until much later. Later on. Okay. But, so but Valley it, College, was this, um, was this Cal State Northridge Valley College? Or? L.A. Valley College. That's a precursor to Cal yeah, State junior Northridge, college right? before I went to Northridge. Okay. See, I, I had very poor grades because I, I just had no concentration. I mean, I was a C D F guy. That, okay. You know, those are my fact. Those are <laughs> when I when I take an I test. Those are the things that come out C D F because that's all I could see. And um, so I, I was fortunate enough to finally get out of North Hollywood, and I obviously didn't have the grades to go anywhere. I never even tried to take an SAT or anything, and I went to to Valley, and I was flunking out there. And um, I was fortunate enough to get through the first semester, and I was on probation, and I was walking by the radio room, and uh, someone said, hey, you ought to try it. And I said, hey, is it an easy grade? And he said, yes. I said, I'm in. So I went in, and the only thing I knew was sports, and it immediately clicked, and my grades flipped. 
and in two and a half years, then I went to Northridge. To had Northridge. no problems. And what did you call for their radio station? Uh, the, the the college's games. Which ones at, at Valley? At, at Valley. No, I didn't call games there. I just worked in their radio room, or I was I was a DJ. I was doing all oh, that. Okay. Now I did get my first professional job when I was there. I, oh, I, yeah. I did some play-by-play for a cable company in Newhall. Okay. I was making $10 an event back then. Who did you call? What game? Hard High School. Uh, (laughs) We were doing uh, Saga Speedway, uh, doing some uh, auto racing. All right. Which was pretty good. Uh, I don't remember the guy's <laughs> name, but he would drink and smoke in the, in the press box. It was tough to make it. But uh, I know when I got that first check after 10 weeks of $100, I was fired You're up. You were fired up. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, what was uh, So that would have been your first professional job, but what would you consider like you know, your first break where you really got? So, so you're probably at Cal State Northridge now? Yeah, I moved over to CSUN. Yeah. It was valley state which changed to cal state north while you were there there, or before oh wow look at that so it changed when i was there and then uh at the end of my last semester i get hired by uh theta cable tv what what cable? theta cable santa monica west side biggest cable system in southern california and i went to a couple of my teachers and said hey i may quit i may walk out and they were kind enough to let me write papers and were giving me C's and B's. I actually bargained with them, and then I, that's how I got out. I okay. I, you know, so I wrote some papers for them, and I went out, and I, I got the Theta Cable job. And at Theta Cable, I did Santa Monica City College basketball. I did Pepperdine sports. Okay. And that was the first big break. I was able to do games with Dennis Johnson, great basketball of player. Of course. Didn't they make NCAAs? Yes. With, that, with that, him? Yes, they did. Yeah, they did. The one year yeah. he was there, you yeah. know your stuff. Yeah. 75, 76. Yeah. DJ, Flinny Ray Williams backcourt. Nice. Dick Scopehammer, Marcos Leite, and Ollie Matson Jr. <laughs> Ollie Matson Jr. That's the starting Because Ollie Matson was a great football, football player. player out of Ohio or something, right? Yeah, okay. They upset UNLV. They oh. upset USF so they, and won the conference. Now, and, and was uh, Tarkanian the coach of oh, yeah. UNLV they were at that point? Or was he Long Beach State at that time? It was UNLV. Wow. And they were 24-2, and two and they were in the top five in the country. And uh. Ollie's jump shot beat him from 14 feet at the buzzer. I believe it was 94-92. And I remember Bryant Gumbel coming to me after the game asking for the tape to show it on KNBC, the final shot. Bryant Gumbel. Yep. Oh, that's right, because he wore KNBC. He was at KNBC at the time. I um, It's one of my uh, hopes that doing this podcast as things start that's that like a guy like ollie metzen jr just happens upon it and then he hears his name right like i really i really because i think there's there's so much um emotion well, that that triggers in in through athletics that you remember these things forever like i used to have to explain that to um parish uh pastors mm-hmm. they would always say well you know these kids they remember how many points they scored in a basketball game they, they can't remember my homily <laughs> and I was like, I'm telling your father something about athletics, you know. You know, other than the Colfax <laughs> 65 situation, the the closest thing to my heart is that Pepperdine team. Gary Colson was the coach. I later worked Gary with him again Coulson. at Fresno State when he was the head coach there. Saw him again when he was in New Mexico in between the two jobs yeah, when he was yeah. in Albuquerque. But I remember those guys. I mean, DJ, the Hall of Fame basketball player, unfortunately passed away when he was 50. Uh, yeah. Ollie Madsen still on Facebook with. Dick Scopehammer still amongst the leaders in scoring and rebound, rebounding in school history. Their center, Marcos Leite, interesting story from Brazil, maybe the best center in the country. I believe a couple things about that team. They lost a tough game to UCLA in the tournament 
at Paulie. So I believe they win that game. I believe at, they beat the Bruins. Is, is, if, that, is that after Wooden? Yeah, this is 75-70. So it was Cunningham's first year. Yeah. Okay, it was Cunningham's first year. I believe the uh, Waves win the game if it was not if it in was not a Pauly. Okay, but the interesting thing is Pepperdine only had five good players. Their bench guys, huge drop-off. Sure. Bruins had – Eight they had to guys ten. sitting number 12 that yeah. could be starting some. Oh, they would be yeah. big players at Pepperdine. Sure. But I remember Dennis Johnson jumping against Richard Washington, and he controlled the tip. And Washington was an All-American, 6'11", and DJ was 6'4". And then he stole the ball from Andre McCarter at half court and laid it up. And it was the steal and that jump ball that got him drafted. The NBA saw what he did. And I talked to Andre McCarter in later years, and he told me he was a great point guard for UCLA. Sure, he was great. He said that's the only time he ever had the ball stolen from him. <laughs> what was uh, what, what, what did it take you from there? So you're doing all of those. You graduate from Cal State Northridge. Yeah, I, uh, you know. Found a way to graduate, did you? Yeah, somehow. <laughs> uh, uh, USF basketball with Cartwright, Hardy, and Boynes. Uh, Bill Cartwright, Winford Boynes, James Trouble Hardy, all three you, played you in the You called the USF NBA. games? For a couple of years. They, they have a real great, uh, rich history in basketball. Yeah, I did the you know, TV. They, yeah. From the Bill Russell yeah, yeah. leading forward, they really, they really, uh, they've always had a, a strong. And they were number one in the country when I was there. And wow. And they got upset. But, they, you know, they lost to Cal State Florida in the NCAA tournament. But they were a tremendous team. Five great players. Uh, the three NBA guys. Everybody knows about Bill Cartwright because he later went into the NBA and played with the Bulls with Jordan and won some NBA championships. But th- those were great teams. And. Um, I remember those. I was the color analyst on those. I didn't do the play-by-play there. I did color, believe it or not. I work with uh, Joe Angel, who has always done a lot of okay. Major League Baseball, and John Miller, who uh, John Miller, the, was the voice the of the uh, Orioles. Yeah, the Orioles, the Giants. And now, now Major League Baseball. Yeah, he's doing the Giants, and he, and he did Major League Baseball. He was ESPN's number one guy he, he, he on Sunday Night Vince, Baseball. He does Vince Scully impersonation. Right, I was at the table, and he would do it. <laughs> he's hilarious. Yeah. One thing about John, he always looked old. He looked like when you know when he was young, he looked old, but he's never changed. Yeah. So now he's a little bit older, he looks great. <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 it's come over. So now, is this around the time that you got to work with Coach Wooden? A little later. Uh, a few years later, jumping forward, I was fortunate enough to get hired to do UCLA basketball. I was actually out of work. Now, I went from out of work to the voice of the Bruins on network cable TV. So network cable TV would have been like some kind of cable. USA Network at the time. And the last year I did it, with Ann Myers on ESPN. And this is right about when ESPN comes in, maybe? Well, I did. ESPN's 83 or I something. did 82. That was okay, my first wow. year. I did 82, so you're chart, 83, new 84, right in there. And But the first year I was on USA Network. So get this, I do the package. It was a handful of games. Coach Wooden was going to be my color analyst. I get a call from the package. You're going, we've added one game to the package. It's the first game. I go, great. He goes, one thing, it's in Tokyo, Japan. (laughs) I go, I'm in. So they played Temple in Tokyo. Oh, wow. I did half the game play-by-play. The Temple announcer did the other one. The Bruins blew them out in the first half at Yoyogi Gymnasium in Tokyo, Japan. What was it like working with Coach Wooden? Was he um, in coach mode at all, or did he have the distance? Because this is about seven years after he had been the coach. Uh, fond memories. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do, and I, I wanted to establish it early, that I had respect for the coach. Uh, and I told him, Coach, I'm going to call you Coach on there, but I might call you John at times, and I don't want you to be bothered by that. I just want to change it up a little bit. And he said, no problem with that. Right. And we had a good relationship. Um, he was 
just another guy in the booth, but I tried to tell myself growing up in Los Angeles, watching all his championship teams, he's not just another guy. Not just another guy. But the hardest thing is we would shoot our on-cameras on the floor at Pauley Pavilion, and we'd go upstairs to do the play-by-play. we do on top. Well, Coach would start signing autographs. People would start coming up. Uh, and I was the bad guy on all home games. You had to. I had to yank him out of there, or he would have stood, and we would have missed our – He's so yeah, polite. I mean, but again, He's the, such the, a nice guy when he does that, yeah. Yeah, but our on camera would have been good because that was on tape already. But, <laughs> but Coach, we got to get upstairs, so I had to do that every time. So, and, and, and the did one, you find him to be a good analyst? I thought he was okay. Again, yeah. I was into my thing – uh, he, he had insight, obviously. Um, I've worked with greater color analysts if you're just breaking them down from a broadcast perspective. But, heck, he's John he's, he's Robert Wooden. Wooden. That's right. So, Did, Was he afraid to be critical of players? I don't remember that. I think he just kind of saw it as the, he the saw The side it. of him that I enjoy so much yeah. uh, digging in, because we work with the John R. Wooden course right. and with Wooden's Wisdom on this podcast. Both, both of those groups. And sure. so just digging into his archives and stuff, some of the clips of him when he gets a little riled up oh, sure. are, are fascinating. He is a competitive oh. guy. You can't do what he did without being competitive. Yet he'll, he'll always talk to you and say, we never mentioned the word win. Right. We always talked about this. Oh, wow. Did, did, did This guy, he, he was a competitive guy. So I just wondering if he just, I, like, turned it off or if he I was saw it to, once. Uh, I'm not sure I really should share the story, but please. I will. <laughs> this will give you some notoriety. The producers wanted – Larry Brown was the head coach of the Bruins yeah. when we were doing the games. Uh, the producers wanted John Wooden to interview, coach with coach, that we're going to put into the show. Larry Brown turned him down. Oof. So uh, one of the SIDs but, came over and co- told the coach, Coach Brown doesn't want to do it. We'll get you an assistant if you want. And, Coach, that wasn't what the producers wanted. That's the one time he was irked, and I kind of had to settle him down. Would Larry Brown do that because he's trying to escape the massive shadow that Wooden left over the program? I don't or, believe or Larry that. Brown I think just... Larry Brown was probably distant to the media, even though his brother was big in the media, and no doubt. certainly in later years, Yubi's oh, wow. uh, very big well, in the Larry media. Larry Brown was, was a terrific coach. He's, Everywhere he uh, went, he did nothing but win. And I was upset when UCLA let him go. I felt like he was—he should have been their guy. And when I interviewed him, because I did interview Larry Brown on a few of the shows, I had no problems with him. I know he'd always slap me on the leg. We'd sit down in the stands. He'd slap me on the good job and see you later. I mean, <laughs> but he'd come and go fast. So I could see that maybe you might have a point. Maybe he didn't want to get involved with the aura yeah, of Coach Wood. I aura. could see that. Yeah. You've, um, you know, you've always—you've said that the highlight of your career is calling the Olympic Games. Not even close. Not even close? Not, well, you, I can you, give you some great memories. Well, you're going to say AAU Beach Volleyball was better? <laughs> it's up there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in all candor, I mean, the Softball World Series a number of years ago, 92, Lisa Fernandez pitches a oh, shutout. Wow. I call a walk-off homer by UCLA to win the national title. No doubt. That's up okay. there. Uh, U.S. winning the gold medal in rowing in 2004. Now, when they won that gold medal in rowing, yeah. That's where you made your – the drought is over. Yeah, for the and that And that is kind of like, do you believe in miracles, but in the rowing world. Right. Is that, is that, is that accurate to say? Yeah, and I had it teed up in my mind. I, I, I never thought I'd really use it because I didn't know if the United States would win a gold. But the, the women the, – the sequence on NBC was interesting. They play the women first. Okay. So the women wins the silver. Commercial break, come back. Now, they threw the commercial break in later. I didn't sure. have that. And now we're down to one race 
in the heavyweight eights. We've been destroyed in every of the you know the other events in rowing. Okay. Americans didn't compete. The only ones they competed well in in Athens were the heavyweight eights, the eight-man boat. This is Athens, two thousand four. Athens, two thousand and four. I know we're all over the board. No, here. this is good. This we're is all good. over the board. So, like I said, the women finish second. They get the silver. It's one shoot. I'm looking at. They come out of the shoot. This is it. All or nothing. It's two thousand meters. They're at the halfway meter, 1,000 meters. They have a big lead, and I'm thinking, this is it. Now it starts coming to me. Uh-huh. We get to a point where I know the Americans are going to hold off the, comp- the competition. I'm turning to Yaz Farouk, my analyst. I wanted her to take the big moment. I wanted to give it to her, and she didn't say anything. And she was a brilliant analyst. Okay. Yaz did a number of Olympics. But she's letting you do yours. She just didn't take it. And I turn, they cross the finish line, and I go, the drought is over. <laughs> it was 40 years. They hadn't won that event in 40 wow. years. Wow. Okay. Well, that's what pops up, you know. But I had it teed up in a perfect that, that's situation. That's what pops up. Yeah, yeah. For, I'm sure in that, not just in you know the Olympic watchers, but especially in that community, Right. that's their call that's a call and that is that a fun part of the job for you yeah i I love drama uh you know uh, as a broadcaster even on a podcast show like this i can get lazy with my mouth i get bored i don't like necessarily doing interviews Mm -hmm. i even get bored and sometimes go out in left field on on broadcast but when there's drama when there's big moments i can play i can play with the best of you will lock in Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit heroesmovementusa.org for more information. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Sports Stories staff includes Marley Rice, Teresa Dolan, Bob McCall, Michael Lennon, Sienna Lennon, Brad Lawson, Christine Jimbo, and Jake Downey. Kick it out, book!